Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. This morning, we're going to study the next section in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and it's a section that at first glance uh, may not seem to be relevant to us today. Paul's going to say some things about Jew-Gentile relations uh, and how Christ reconciles us to one another, and it can be a bit surprising to us that buried in one of our favorite letters in the New Testament, uh, Paul tells us that this is an important issue we should think about, uh, but that's where we are. And I hope that by the time I'm done preaching this, that you'll both understand the passage, but also understand its relevance to us as a church family here at Grace Fellowship Church. And I want to begin our study of it by reminding you that the most important principle when studying one of the New Testament letters is to pay attention to the flow of, an, uh, of the author's argument and the flow of the author's thought. In order to understand the flow of Paul's thought here, we actually have to back all the way up into Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. So, I'm going to read those verses quickly just to remind you of what comes before, because what comes before forms a foundation for what we're going to hear Paul say to us this morning through the Holy Spirit. So, follow along with me while I begin by reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the desires of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast." For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I know it's a long time ago, but four Sundays ago, Dr. Greg Scharf filled the pulpit for me, and he preached these verses, and he did an outstanding job preaching them, so I'm not going to re-preach any of them. He did an excellent job. But I want to remind you of what Paul says here, and I actually also want to remind you quickly of, what, of how Dr. Scharf taught these verses to us. Uh, what Dr. Scharf reminded us from, of from these verses is that God wants us to see ourselves accurately through the mirror of His Word. And when you look into the mirror of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, what do you see? Well, first of all, this passage reminds us that uh, it reminds us of who we are, or who we were, I should say, before God saved us. It reminds us of what we were like when God found us. We were dead in our transgressions and sins uh, with no hope of saving ourselves. But secondly, God met us in the middle of our need. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Because of His great love for us, God graciously saved us from the penalty of our transgressions and made us spiritually alive through Christ. Third, 
God saved us in this specific way, not according to good works that we would do, but according to His grace. He saved us the way He saved us because He's rich in mercy, He loves us, but also because He wanted to show off the surpassing riches of His grace towards us in eternity future. And this grace that He's shown us, it not only includes the grace of forgiveness from sins, it also includes the grace of transformation. He didn't just save us to reconcile us to Himself so that He could have a relationship with us. He also, he also saved us so that we would do some good works. He saved us to do good in the world, good which He had prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So, when you stop and you take a look back at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, what you see is this. They are intensely personal verses. They're about how all of us as individual sinners have been rescued by God from the penalty of our sin. And upon the foundation of that individual rescue, now Paul is going to say something else. He's going to make an argument about our relationship to God's people. Follow along with me now in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. Based on our individual salvation, Paul says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that He Himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. Notice back at the very beginning of verse 11, the word, therefore. Uh, that is a link between these two paragraphs about our individual salvation and our relationship now to the people of God. Verses 1 through 10 of this chapter were intensely personal, but here's the main point I want you to see this morning that verses 11 through 18 talk about our salvation in a very communal way. Our salvation is not just individual. There's a communal ele element to it. You see, God's plan of salvation not only included our individual salvation, it also involved bringing us into unity with the rest of God's people regardless of their race or background. Tom Pennington sums up the theme of these verses this way, all Christians, regardless of their ethnic backgrounds, have been united together in the church through the work of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel is not just individual, it's communal. It reconciles us to God and to His people. That bears repeating, so let me say it again. Christ uh, reconciles us to God and to God's people. Christ doesn't just call us to follow Him alone. When we come to Christ, He puts us in a family with brothers and sisters to help us on our heavenly journey. Christ not only reconciles us to God, but also to one another. How? By leading us away from our alienation towards reconciliation and unity. Now, to fully appreciate the reconciliation Christ brings between people in His church, we first have to deal honestly 
with the disunity that runs between people. Let's look closely at how Paul describes the problem of our alienation from God and His people in verses 11 and 12. He says, "'Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh,' Uh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Again, uh, Paul begins with the word, therefore, uh, which is why I took the time to go back and read those first ten verses of the chapter. But then right after linking these two thoughts that we don't want to miss the flow of thought here, he does two very important things, and the first is this. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul only gives one command. Most of the first three chapters of Ephesians are telling us who God is and what He's done for us and the promises and privileges we have in His kingdom. Most of the first three chapters of Ephesians are full of encouragement and hope for us, not a lot of commandments, not a lot of do's and don'ts. Uh, it's actually supposed to be a very refreshing section uh, of Ephesians. There is only one command the apostle gives in the first three chapters, and it's right here in verse 14. It's the word, remember, and it's directed not at all Christians, it's directed specifically at Gentile Christians, which works perfectly for our church, right? Because we're a Gentile congregation. He wants the Gentile Christians to remember where we were and how hopeless our situation was before we came to Christ. And I think this includes not only Gentiles in the world, in world history before Christ came, it also includes those of us who were Gentiles before we were reconciled to Christ. And he does something very interesting here. Uh, you see, the Greeks, he's, he was writing this in the Greek language, the Greeks had a number of different words for other people in the world who weren't Greek, right, who weren't like them. When they were thinking ethnically, when they were thinking racially, they had a couple of different words for people who weren't like them. One of those words was barbarian. And the reason they, they had that, they gave that as a name for other people who weren't Greek is because to Greek speakers, when the non-Greeks were talking to each other, it sounded like they were saying, bar, 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 and so they called them barbarians. That's, it's like an onomatopoetic word, right? And, and, it, and they didn't necessarily mean anything by it, it's just what they called non-Greek speakers. But they had another word. They had another word that was more negative. It had a pejorative kind of meaning, uh, and we could loosely bring it over into our language as pagans. And what they meant by pagans, not like the way Christians use the word pagan, what they meant by pagans is they meant people who were not enlightened by Greek culture and Greek ways, people who didn't worship the Greek gods, and also people who from their perspective as Greeks, some other cultures who... It, man, it looked like they lived like animals. And so they used this word, and they didn't use it as a compliment. Uh, they were looking down on other cultures, other people, and that word was ethne. And Paul uses it here of Greek speakers, right? He, he takes their word, which they look, at, look down on other people with, and he turns that very word against them and says, look, remember that before you came to Christ, God's people looked at you like you were a pagan, 
And rightly so, rightly so, when we lived according to the desires of our flesh and the rebellious desires of our minds and uh, lived in futile, foolish ways, rightly so that God's people saw us as pagans. Uh, that's how God's people saw us, verse 11. Uh, but now, look at the alienation that we had with God, verse 12. Verse 12 outlines five great disadvantages we faced as Gentile unbelievers. The first was this. While we were still unbelievers, we were without Christ. We had no personal connection to the only Savior God has sent into the world. Second, we were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, I, th I think you could legitimately translate commonwealth here as nation. We weren't part of the nation uh, of God's chosen people. We didn't have any citizenship in heaven. Third, we were foreigners to the covenants of promise. Now, in the Bible, a covenant of promise is a legally binding, it's almost like a legally binding contract or promise that God has made to people. And the point is this, we were foreigners to the promises and privileges that God promised to give all those who are His. So, we were on the outside looking in at the privileges God gives His people. Fourth, we had no hope. William Hendrickson defines biblical hope this way, it is the knowledge of God's promises plus confidence in their fulfillment. Now, uh, in other words, we could say it this way, I know what God has promised, and I'm absolutely confident He's going to fulfill it. That's the idea of biblical hope. Well, before we were reconciled to God, we had no hope. Now, what that means is we may have uh, been delusional in the sense that we were placing our hope in something that was going to let us down in the end. It's not that people who are separated from Christ uh, all experience a feeling of hopelessness. Often they're putting their hope in things, but they're putting their hope in things that are going to let them down in the end. So, we might have been delusional, but we were being delusional, uh, scattering our hopes into other things and other people that were only going to let us down in the end. Or, we saw reality clearly. Uh, we had this uneasy expectation of God's judgment, and we lived lives, as one secular writer has put it, of quiet desperation. We were without any true hope in the world. And then fifth disadvantage uh, we had as Gentiles before coming to Christ, we were without God in the world. We didn't believe in or know the true God. Uh, we were not yet adopted by God into His family as sons and daughters. Uh, we had no access to God's truth about this life or the next. We were like a ship adrift without a rudder, uh, without a compass, without a guide on a starless night. That's a picture of our lostness while we lived alienated from God and His people. But then in verses 13 through 18, we read the happy news about our reconciliation to God and therefore our reconciliation also to God's people. Uh, according to Paul, there are three things that form the basis of our reconciliation with God and His people. The first is this, verse 13, we're reconciled to God and His people based on the reach of Christ. Look again at verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The point I want to make here about the reach of Jesus is that those who were far off, the Gentiles like you and me, 
were brought near. In other words, no one is beyond the reach of the gospel. No one is beyond the saving reach of the Lord Jesus Christ. This goes for those of us uh, Gentiles who were formerly far off from the people of God culturally, uh, uh, geographically, but it also includes those of us who in a spiritual way were far from God in terms of running away from Him in rebellion, ignoring Him to live lives our own way. And this is important to emphasize. No amount of sin you've committed puts you outside the saving reach of the Lord Jesus. When the Holy Spirit brings conviction on people because of their sin, it is a, it is a profoundly healthy but painful experience. And you can look at the evil you've done and think, there's no way I could ever be forgiven for doing these things. And what I want to say to you, if you've ever felt that way, is this. You're probably right uh, about how evil your sins have been, right? You're probably right to see them for what they are. But where you're wrong is to think that you're beyond the reach of Christ, right? Uh, you're wrong about how far His saving reach extends and His power to rescue. Uh, and what the saving reach of Christ does is it extends to all people, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, young and old, respectable sinners and unrespectable sinners, and it reconciles them to God and His people. The second thing that reconciles us to God and His people is found in verses 14 and 15. We're reconciled to God and one another based on the power of Christ. Look again at verse uh, 14. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity. These two verses are actually very easy to understand. They're controlled by just one thought at the beginning of verse 14, and that thought is this, for He Himself is our peace. Christ is our peace. That's the main idea. But then what Paul does is he goes on to give three participles that explain how Christ has become our peace, and we translate those as uh, He made, He broke down, He abolished. So, let's look at all three of them. First of all, He made both groups into one. Literally, the Greek text says, He made both things into one thing. In the New Covenant, Gentiles don't have to assimilate uh, into Israel and into Jewish culture, uh, and Jews don't have to forsake their Jewish heritage to become something else. In the New Covenant, God also didn't cause Jews and Gentiles to be separate but equal. No, He put them, He took both groups, and He made them one new group, one new spiritual race in the church. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3, verses 27 and 28, "'For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus.'" Maybe we could say it this way, "'Though it's true that ethnic, gender, and cultural distinctions run deep in each one of them,' we need to admit they do, they run deep, even though that's true, those things don't define us as Christians. Our essential identity as Christians is now, it's now become that we are sons and daughters of Jesus. H.B. Charles Jr. Uh, put it this way, commenting on this very verse I just read. I love this quote. Blood is not thicker than water if that water is baptism. Uh, baptism brings us together in Christ 
you are actually closer to, uh, to a, a other Christians than you would be to an identical twin of yourself that grew up in the same family, and yet the identical twin isn't following Jesus. In Christ, we have become an entirely new race, an entirely new nation, and that nation is the church. Only the power of Christ could accomplish that, but how did He use His power to do that? Well, uh, Paul says, first of all, verse 14, he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, I believe Paul is speaking here metaphorically about the animosity uh, that separated Jews and Gentiles during ancient times and still separates Jews and Gentiles to an extent uh, in our own day. But he's also using this as an expression from the physical temple so that there will be a physical illustration that we can look at to understand His meaning. And I want to give you sort of a parallel example uh, that's like this from the temple that we read about in the Gospels. When it came to our alienation from God being reconciled on the cross, what picture from the temple in Jerusalem best illustrates that reconciliation? Well, it was that moment when Jesus died where the 30-foot veil in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, when it was torn in two from top to bottom, and it represented our access to God. Well, Paul's doing something similar here. He's taking a physical illustration from the temple in Jerusalem to illustrate our reconciliation, to, uh, the, the reconciliation of the Gentiles to the Jews uh, through the cross of Christ. You see, in Paul's day, there was a large court in the Temple Mount where Gentiles were welcome to come and pray and worship. But around the temple proper, there was a stone wall that kept Gentiles at a distance from the temple and from the courtyard immediately outside of the, the temple proper. And, uh, at, uh, and that wall, at regular intervals, had limestone slabs with warnings on them to the Gentiles not to enter in to the temple court itself. Uh, and it was a wall that separated Jew and Gentile in worship. And uh, we, we, have, we found it, archaeological digs, have, even though the Romans came in and absolutely demolished the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, we have been able to find these markers. In fact, we have a slide for that uh, today. There it is, the limestone marker. That's Greek. That's all uh, uppercase letters in Greek to make sure everybody understands. And here's, here's what, how that marker read. No Gentile is to enter within the balustrade and embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will render himself liable to the death penalty, which will inevitably follow. Uh, this copy is in a museum in Istanbul, and when Mark and Gail go to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, uh, you can see a fragment that's kind of like the middle left portion. Both sides have been broken off, but you can, you'll see a fragment uh, in next week, actually. In the next week, you'll probably see the fragment there at the Israel Museum. Now, here's the point I want to make about uh, this stone tablet and its warning. The Roman authorities allowed the Jews to practice the death penalty for Gentiles uh, who were guilty of trespassing into the temple area. Um, and so, this, this was a dividing wall that divided Jews and Gentiles in worship in the temple. But what has happened now in the new covenant in Christ's blood? Well, we no longer worship in the temple, 
and our reconciliation to God reconciled us also to God's people in the church so that we all worship together without any distinction in our worship services. There's no like, you can't find any examples in church history, you can't find any church today where the front three or four pews are roped off just for Jews, and even if you're in a community that doesn't have many Jews and, and no Jews show up, the Gentiles still aren't allowed to sit in those pews. We don't, nobody does it that way. That's crazy. Like, you guys are kind of smiling because that's ridiculous. <clears throat> but I bring that up to point to the fact that God has made Jew and Gentile one in the church without distinction. And He did it, verse eight, uh, 15, not only by uh, breaking down the dividing wall because we no longer worship in the temple, He also did it, verse 15, by abolishing in His flesh the enmity which uh, is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Okay, honestly, that's a little bit of an awkward sentence. It's a little intimidating, but we need to, we need to pull it apart. So, first of all, you could translate that word abolished as nullify or make ineffective. And I want to point out, Christ didn't make ineffective uh, the law of commandments. He made ineffective the enmity which the law of commandments and ordinances incited between Jew and Gentile. So, we have to ask the question, well, what, what does Paul mean by law and commandments? Does he, does he mean the, the man-made thing that they put around the temple? What, what? Well, if you go to other passages in the New Testament, what you find is that Paul uses this language to describe the Mosaic law. And in the Mosaic law, there were three kinds of law. Uh, first of all, there was the civil law to help Israel. Uh, there was the civil law to govern the new nation of Israel that God had brought out of slavery in Egypt. <clears throat> Excuse me. As Christians, we don't try to follow that law. That's part of the old covenant. The New Testament makes it clear that the civil laws we follow are the civil laws of whatever government we live under, right? Paul makes that clear in Romans 13. Peter makes that, the Apostle Peter makes that clear in 1 Peter chapter 2. We follow the laws of whatever nation we live in. That's the civil law. But the second kind of law in the law of Moses was the moral law. The, the law of Moses contained the unchanging moral law, which is a reflection of God's very character, and that moral law is repeated in the New Testament. It's reiterated in the New Testament, <clears throat> and those who follow Christ, we make it our goal to live according to that moral law. Excuse me. <clears throat> but then there was a third kind of law in the law of Moses, and those were the ceremonial laws that had to do with worship, right? Kosher laws about what foods to eat and what to not eat, uh, laws about which holidays to celebrate, how to celebrate them, uh, what kind of sacrifices to bring, uh, those kinds of laws, the ceremonial law. Well, for the sake of time, I'm not going to take you there, but if you go over to Colossians chapter 2, Paul explains that those ceremonial laws were a shadow that foreshadowed and pointed forward to Christ, but now that Christ has come, the, the body is present in Christ Himself. Christ is the fulfillment of all of those ceremonial laws, which is why we're not living with the same food restrictions. It's why we don't have to cel we don't celebrate the same uh, holidays that, uh, that that are in the Old Testament that are prescribed. Right? We uh, Christ is the fulfillment of all those laws. Now, here's the question: 
What is it about those ceremonial laws that created hostility between Jew and Gentile? Well, it wasn't the law itself. The law of Moses was not a bad thing. It was beautiful and fruitful for the purpose for which it was intended, and many of those laws and sacrifices were meant to be didactic. They were meant to te- they were pedagogical. They were meant to teach the people that the penalty of sin is death, but God's provided a substitute. But when Jesus came, the need for animal sacrifices was done away with because He became our once-for-all sacrifice. Um, And so, uh, the problem was not with the law. The problem is what human nature did with the ceremonial law. You see, what happened is this. The Jews kept those laws, which in many ways, especially like the food and the cleanliness laws in particular, separated them from Gentiles. And they took… and it made them a peculiar people. The Old Testament uses that language, that God made them a peculiar people, but they were also supposed to be a witness nation to the rest of the world. Well, what the Jews did is they took those laws, and instead of using them for the purpose they were intended, they used those laws as a form of self-righteousness, and they also used used the laws to isolate themselves from the very Gentiles they were supposed to be a witness nation to, and it created hostility on both sides. In ancient times, there were many Gentiles who were already anti-Semitic and needed to be saved from their irrational hatred of God's people. But there were also many Jews who looked down on Gentiles and referred to them as dogs, and they didn't mean that as a compliment. I know we're a, we're a culture that we like dogs, we like our pets, but when the Jews called Gentiles dogs, they didn't mean that as a compliment. They meant like wild scavenger dogs, and, and it was a put-down. And this is important. That hostility, again, was not created by the Mosaic law, but by what sinful human nature did when it misused, misunderstood, and misapplied that law. It created hostility between Jew and Gentile. But Christ did away with all of that when He fulfilled the requirements of the ceremonial law, which had always been pointing forward to Him and found their fulfillment in Him. And He did so, He he abolished this hostility into verse 15. Uh, and also made the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So, catch this, that in the church, just as in marriage, there's a new math. One plus one equals one. That's the new math in the church. Uh, God takes uh, a group of Jewish Christians and a group of Gentile Christians and makes them one new people in the church, and only the power of Christ could accomplish that. In the church, Jew and Gentile have been reconciled to one another, and we've also been reconciled to God and His people, not just based on the reach of Christ and the power of Christ, but also on the benefits of Christ. Look at verse 16. I know this is a little awkward because Paul's in the middle of a sentence, Uh, but he says of Christ, and He might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity, and He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, for through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. Uh, As we study these verses, I want you to consider first the emphasis of verse 16. The phrase, them both, is obviously referring to both uh, two groups, uh, Jews and Gentiles. And speaking of the them both, Paul says that Christ reconciles both groups to God through the cross. Now, 
if both groups need to be reconciled to God, what does that assume? It assumes that not just Gentiles need to be saved. The Jews, who in this passage are portrayed as near to God, they need to be saved as well. And that's very important for understanding verse 17, because when we get into verse 17, do you notice uh, all the letters are in caps? Verse 17 is in all caps. That's because Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, and here's what he's doing. There was this, uh, he's quoting a passage from the Old, Old Testament that all pious Jews knew. It comes from Isaiah 57, and it's a promise of a future day. It's a prophecy. It's a promise of a future day when God re- would restore Jews who had been dispersed from Israel because of Gentile invasions. They'd been dispersed all over the ancient world, and He would restore them to the land. He would restore those Jews who were near, maybe in a neighboring country, and those who were completely across on the other side of the Mediterranean. He would bring them back. He would restore Jews near and far to their land. Well, now Paul is picking up that language, but he's using near and far to speak of Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews, spiritually speaking, are the ones who are near to God. The Gentiles, spiritually speaking, are the ones that are far away. Um, but here's the point. Both groups need to be reconciled to God. And what's gonna go, what happens later on in the book of Romans, Paul talks about this near and far away issue with the Jews and Gentiles. He goes into greater… Uh, he, 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 he gives a, a longer explanation. And what he basically says is this, the Jews had certain uh, privileges and advantages being God's people, but at the end of the day, both Jews and Gentiles are condemned by God's law. The Jews are condemned by God's revealed law given to them in their own language, and us Gentiles are condemned by the law of God written in our heart. We know what the right thing to do is, and yet we do the wrong thing over and over and over again because we want what we want. And both groups end up alienated from God and need reconciliation. So, here's the main point I want to make. Though the Jews have some spiritual advantages and are nearer to God in a sense, sin places us all on an equal level. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. In the days of Noah, surely there had to be people who dwelled uh, on high hills with panoramic vistas, and people who dwelled lower in the valleys, near the rivers for convenience, maybe for, uh, maybe for the sake of business, they lived closer to the rivers. But when the rains came and the floods came, anybody who wasn't on the ark was destroyed, even if they lived on a high hill, right? It, that was no advantage at the end of the day if they weren't in the ark. Well, so it is with Christ. To be near in the context of verse 17 means to be almost saved, which means not to be saved at all. And by analogy, we could apply this spiritual concept to the two groups of respectable sinners and unrespectable sinners here in America. Some people have wasted their lives in nightclubs and in substance abuse and careening from one romantic relationship to another in sexual sin. Other people have wasted their lives from the church pews, obeying the law, but perhaps choosing churches that don't teach truth, perhaps going to churches that do teach truth, but never really bowing the knee to Christ. Uh, uh, But we need to say this, far away is not too far away for the reach of Christ, and near isn't near enough uh, 
if you're without Christ. You have to have all people, near and far, need what only Christ can offer. Which leads into verse 18, where we learn that through Christ, both Jews and Gentiles have access in one spirit to the Father. The word access here means to bring near, but it was also used of an actual official in the government who would give people an introduction to the king. The finished work of Christ then arranged for us an introduction to God the Father. But when we went to the appointed time and place, we found that we were in a mixed meeting room with Jews and Gentiles, and so we just sort of thought that the Holy Spirit would take a group of Jews first, and then later on He would come back and take a group of us Gentiles. And instead, the Holy Spirit takes this mixed group of Jew and Gentile together to God the Father, and at our introduction we find that if we're willing to confess our sins, God the Father is happy. It is His joy uh, to bring us into His kingdom. So, Christ provided the access, but the introduction happens through the Spirit who applies the work of Christ to our hearts by faith, and the Father welcomes us gladly into His kingdom. And you've probably noticed there, verse 18, we have all three members of the Trinity working in harmony to save people. So, as we think about what we've learned from these verses, one of the great things that we need to say unites us in the church as, as Jew and Gentile, black and white, men and women, young and old, it is the benefits package of what we all receive in Christ. Through Him, we all have our access to the Father by the Spirit that He sent into the world after His ascension. We share the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, the same Scriptures, and the same hope of our Lord's return. This reconciliation to God and one another through Christ, then, it forms the foundation for our unity here at Grace Fellowship Church, Um, and also our unity with all the other believers outside of our church who who have also been reconciled to Christ. Uh, this This reconciliation is the foundation for Christian unity. Uh, you actually have more in common with uh, a brother or sister living in Tehran than you do with a neighbor who's your same ethnicity, voted for the same person in the last presidential election, and even cheers for your favorite baseball team. Like that, you have more in common with that believer in another country than you do with an American who isn't following Christ. Uh, And what I want to say by way of application this morning, based on these verses, is that our unity here at Grace Fellowship Church is both an objective reality but it's also a pursuit. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, In 1947, Jackie Robinson and the Brooklyn Dodgers integrated professional baseball, and it wasn't a smooth transition, but in time, they were very successful, and they even won a World Series together. Um, Well, when they were going through that transition, just imagine if the manager had got them together and say, look, guys, you need to play as a team. The fact is, you are all united. You're all one. You all get a paycheck from the Brooklyn Dodger organization. You're all wearing the same uniform. You all answer to me as the manager. You are one. And there is a sense in which he would have been correct. There was a sense in which uh, they were in it together. They were going to share the same win-loss record together as a team. And yet, there's also a sense in which even though players are on the same team, they can still criticize each other, 
They can still insult one another. They can still stab each other in the back. It doesn't mean they're going to act unified. Um, and so they needed to go from disunity to unity. Um, and, and here's part of the way it worked on the side of those players who were prejudiced. Uh, when they tried to integrate the team, there were some white players who had no problem with it. There were other white players who did have a problem with it, and they would have preferred an all-white team. But you know what they preferred in the end when they were for forced to deal with the decision management, ma management made? What they preferred in the end was being able to continue playing professional baseball on the Brooklyn Dodgers, and they also preferred winning games to having an all-white team. You see, their shared love of baseball and winning uh, was more important to them than what they didn't share. And, and in time, uh, many of them also overcame their prejudice, which is the main point of the story. Uh, but the point I want to make is that you have to actually work at unity. You have to work on a practical level at being unified. You know this if you're married, right? There's an objective sense in which, biblically speaking, you're one flesh with your spouse, but you still have to work at being unified. And if you're married and you have children, uh, you may agree with your spouse in terms of your parenting philosophy and the big rules of the house, and you may even have a good track record, right, of, uh, uh, of being unified when you raised elementary age children. But what happens as the children get older? You still have to work at unity because all kinds of things that are new are thrown at you by your children. Can I watch this new movie? Can I stay out late with these knuckleheads? Can I go base jumping with crazy Uncle Jerry? And, you, and there's like all this new stuff that you have to deal with, so you constantly have to have these parenting conversations uh, uh, as a married couple. You have to keep working at it. Well, the same is true for us here as a church at Grace Fellowship Church, right? Uh, as a church family, if you look at our past, uh, we survived COVID. We survived COVID without anybody leaving the church over the policies that we had to implement for safety, right? And there, was, there were some people in the congreg congregation at the time. Uh, I'm not giving you an analysis of COVID that's current, right? Just remember back then, okay? Remember what it was like. There were some people at the time who thought it was just like the flu and, every, and it was crazy. And there, there were other people who thought uh, that it was very, very serious, and we needed to take every single precaution, even if it, not, it meant not meeting for months and months and months. And yet, as a body, we all still stuck together through COVID. Uh, it's my observation, it appears to me that we've been able to make it unscathed through a number of different presidential elections now, which I'm thankful for, right? But here's the problem. Even as a church with a decent track record, the, the seeds of disunity are on the ground. They're just waiting to germinate. And so we have to be diligent to work together uh, at unity and harmony with one another, which means that where we've sinned against one another, we're willing to confess our sins and forgive one another from the heart. Where sin issues aren't in play, we need to, but, but where someone expresses a strong opinion you don't agree with, we need to be able to tolerate one another in love and give people some space to come to different conclusions on things that are conscience issues. But most important of all, positively speaking, we need to celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ together because He's the one through whom we have unity. Earlier in this sermon, I quoted H.B. Charles Jr. He's one of my favorite uh, expositors of Scripture 
And many years ago, he moved from Los Angeles uh, to Jacksonville, Florida, uh, to, to pastor a new congregation. And early in his ministry there, uh, there was an opportunity to merge his predominantly black congregation with a predominantly white congregation. Now, you know that even when both sides of a church merger share the same ethnicity, same culture, uh, that even in those cases, church mergers are fraught with difficulty. In fact, the statistics tell us that most church mergers are unsuccessful and don't even make it to the one-year mark. But uh, for H.B. Charles and his church, uh, their church merger was successful. Uh, It happened eight years ago. They've been growing and thriving ever since then. They've never had uh, a group of disgruntled people from one church or the other leave, uh, a large group of people leave. And so, from the outside looking in, they've had a church merger that looks very, very successful, and other pastors want to learn from it. And uh, recently, someone asked, I overheard an interview where someone asked H.B. Charles what he learned from the experience, and he said that he learned these three lessons. First, people are people. Second, we're all sinners in need of grace. And third, the more we focus on the gospel, the closer we get to one another. That third point is worth repeating. The more we focus on the gospel, the closer we get to one another. Christ has brought us from alienation to reconciliation with God and one another. Now we need to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace by doing what makes for peace and by celebrating Christ together as a church family. Let's pray.